Kia ora and welcome to the Creative Matters podcast, where we have inspiring conversations with New Zealand artists. I'm your host, Mandy Yakic. These conversations are intimate, uplifting and insightful. The guests on the show have absolutely enriched my life and I'm sure their stories will have the same effect on you. Thank you so much for joining me to listen to these amazing people speak about what drives them, the way they work and their personal takes on life. Fleur Woods is a contemporary fibre artist based in the beautiful rural village of Upper Moteri, near Nelson in New Zealand. She is surrounded by vineyards, hop farms, orchards and country gardens. It makes sense that her work is largely inspired by nature. Fleur describes her style of work as contemporary stitched paintings. Coming to Stitch as a mixed-media artist, she has taught herself a variety of embroidery techniques which generally don't follow traditional embroidery but beautifully serve the kind of mark-making she loves. In this episode, we talk about all sorts of things, from so-called nana craft to discovering your creative soul. Fleur talks about her love of nature, connecting people, encouraging creativity and inspiring others. She also talks about how she came to be a full-time artist, how she discovered embroidery through her love of mark making, how vintage fabrics resonated so much with her but she was never sure why until later in her practice. Fleur talks about how connected she feels with past generations of creative women and how she feels stitching is part of her DNA, part of her maker genes. We chat about her entrepreneurial approach to her business, which includes creating and selling beautiful personally assembled kits at various levels and different themes, and why she doesn't like to include too many instructions. She makes and sells textile treasure packs and she teaches workshops around New Zealand and in Australia. She has built a hugely engaged community and audience across the world through social media. And on top of all that, she tells us about her most recent exciting project and new baby, her own book, The Untamed Thread, which is out next month. Calling Fleur Woods in Upper Moteri. Good morning, Fleur. Hi. It's very lovely to meet you. So cool to meet you too, Mandy. Thank you. I feel like you are, I don't know, just you're, you've got, you radiate this sort of beautiful personality through your Instagram and even just the way that you talk about your work and the way that you name some of your um, courses like Joyful Embroidery and the way you speak just feels like you are. I don't know, just have this gorgeous, um, joyful nature that you want to share through your work. So it's very lovely to meet you. Thank you. Thank you. That's such a a nice way to be welcomed. (laughs) And uh, yeah, welcome to the Creative Matters podcast. I know you're a very busy person, so I appreciate you fitting us into your hectic schedule. What have you been up to this week? Um, it has been quite busy this week and seems to be quite a busy year for me, which is 
Certainly not complaining. Um, this week, I have launched my online course, Joyful Embroidery with Fibre Arts Take Two. We have a new intake of students each year. So it's been really exciting to see students turning up. We have a um, the course is online, so people can kind of do the modules at their own pace. But we also have a a private Facebook group for the course. Um, so people jump in there and I'm in there each day um, for eight weeks. And it's pretty delightful seeing people turn up from all over the world um, and begin creating and start getting to know them a little bit. So that's been kind of taking a fair amount of my time this week. And um, I've been preparing for a workshop in Auckland next week um, and finishing off a commission. Um, so yeah, it's it's all go. Yeah, it's busy. And you've got two children, age twelve and fourteen, and George the dog. Yes, George is my favourite child. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the girls are yeah, Lily and Saffron. They're amazing. Um, so yeah, that that side of life, mum life, is full as well as art life. Mm. Yeah, it must be really busy. Well, um, you are obviously a very creative person and you've been making for a long time. How did it all start in the beginning? I mean, I think like probably so many artists, I definitely feel like I've been making since I was a child, really. It just took me quite a long time to decide to make it my living and um so I guess it really started for me in high school. The high school art room was a pretty kind of special safe haven for me. Um, I was at St Hilda's in Dunedin and um, so kind of like heavily influenced in those days by Graham Sydney and, and the Otago landscapes and things like that. So, yeah, that was a real starting point for identifying that art was special to me and um, something that I really loved but um, I kind of didn't pursue it properly straight from school I really should have gone to art school but I didn't I guess I was trying to be sensible maybe really? <laughs> I don't know um, was it but... something that was it something that you were considering and then decided not to so you were definitely in that kind of mindset at that time yeah, I was considering it, I guess, um, in the sense that I'd gotten really great grades in my, you know, with my portfolios and things. And so my teachers had sort of expressed this encouragement for me to go to art school. I think, I think I just really wanted to know how the world worked. I think, yeah, I think I just... It, it wasn't that my family weren't supportive of the arts, but I guess there was this kind of understanding at the time that really art wasn't the most practical career choice potentially. So I I, I had this sense that I maybe wanted to work out how the world worked. And in hindsight, I possibly should have gone to art school, but because I think I would have loved it. But um, I kind of mucked around and and did a little bit of time at Otago Uni and, and then went to Aussie for a few years and worked and just kind of um, fell into the corporate world a little bit. And then I did actually return to New Zealand 
in around, I think it must have been 2001, 2002, and went to Massey um, Art and Design School for a little while, mm. which I loved, actually. The, the initial first year in particular was just wonderful. Um, and what made you decide to go to university at that, at that point, Fleur? I think I'd realised that my taste of the real world wasn't as exciting as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I think it was really good for me probably just to go and understand what it was like to have a day job and um, that money could be helpful but wasn't completely satisfying. And um, so it was, yeah, I was definitely realised that I needed to create, I think, as well. I sort of had stopped painting I was a painter really at that point and I'd stopped because I was so deeply frustrated that I couldn't capture that magic that the likes of a Graham Sydney or a you know the artists that I admired at the time could and I think I thought as a young creative that that lived in realism and photorealistic kind of work and that perhaps um, I guess what I, yeah, so I guess I just kept getting drawn back to creativity, um, but I didn't, but I was so deeply frustrated by it. And I I think I thought maybe I didn't have the talent perhaps to, to do it. Um, although my family and I had traveled to amazing art galleries and, and museums around the world. And so I had been exposed to something much more and much more nuanced, but I guess I just didn't feel particularly accessible or, I didn't know what the pathway into it was. So I think I that's when I thought, well, I should try art school. Maybe that's the pathway. Um, and I did go to art school for a couple of years and really enjoyed it. And I was like, you know, the 21-year-old, 22-year-old, like I was just such a geek. I just, I I understood the pure privilege of being there and, and didn't muck around, you know, um, was really, really into it. But um, then, unfortunately, I became quite unwell with Crohn's disease in my 20s and so didn't couldn't quite manage part-time work and study, So, uh, but couldn't, couldn't really afford to not work. So I, um, I paused the degree and worked and then kind of, yeah, fell back down the corporate rabbit mm. hole for a for quite a few years before finding art again, yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. And uh, you, at, when you fell back into that corporate world, were you still kind of creating on the side, or did you leave that completely at that time? Um, I had little, I had little patches. So um, I did, I did explore. Um, I sort of went back to painting. the The degree structure at Massey was very contemporary, which was really interesting, but probably um, confused me a little bit because I felt quite drawn to paint and mixed media kind of collage work. Um, so I started to play around with that from time to time at home and I did um, eventually kind of do some little random bits on the side. I, I did something at the, I think it used to be called the New Zealand Art Show, I, I put a couple of pieces in that, you know, I just kind of kept dipping my toe in here and there. I had a little um, exhibition at Thistle Hall Gallery on Cuba Street many moons ago um, and at the odd piece in a cafe or whatever. So I did, I kind of, I, I potted along, but I didn't, 
didn't really, still didn't quite know how I was going to dive in, I suppose. Mm, and devote yourself. Mm. And so were you thinking of yourself as a as a mixed media artist at that stage or was that a bit early to have that label? I mean, yeah, I think I was. I think I had grand visions for myself in theory. I just, you know, it was sort of that weird time where you you know you want to do it. You're not really sure how to do it. Um, so you just have to try lots of little avenues and see what feels good or worthwhile. And um, often I think the trickiest thing about creative work is that you don't realize at the start that you just need to make a lot of work in yeah. order for it to evolve and become good. Mm. Um, so you sort of make something that's the best of a bad bunch and you put it out into the world and, and kind of feel a bit baffled as to why perhaps it's not really as embraced as you think it should be because you've seen how terrible your other work was. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah. It's a good way of looking at it, and it is so true that it's the, um, you know, honing your craft and allowing time and space for your creativity is what makes you get better and better. But it is so hard to find the time for a lot of people. Yeah, so, yeah, and at that time I was working full-time and trying to kind of manage my health and, and you know, you're in your 20s, you're having those beautiful, like, what am I doing with my life moments and <laughs> all of that fun stuff, I guess, building your confidence and and trying to work out who you are. So yeah, it, um, it was a bit of a, a muddle for quite a long time. Mm. And when did you actually get to that point where you thought, right, I'm going to devote myself to it and become a full-time artist? Well, I guess I it kind of happened in two phases. The first phase was that I got pregnant with our eldest, so 14 years ago, a little over 14 years ago, and we decided to jack in our jobs in Wellington and move to Nelson. Um, my parents were living in the Upper Moteri Valley, and it just felt like it, it would be a nice place to to bring up children. And at that point, I had sort of said to my husband that my main goal was to have a stall at the Nelson Saturday Market, um, which for anyone who's been is a gloriously creative and, and vibrant local market. So that yeah. was like my top life goal at that point was to make something. I didn't really know what, but um, and then, of course, you know, having children, that was a bit of a juggle and um, for quite a while. And then it was like... 2014, I think, when we had moved out to the Moteri and we were kind of, the kids were maybe two and four, and I'd been making lots of really dreadful things, but enjoying it. Um, and that's when I kind of went, okay, I think there might be the the space and the family support and the time to to dig in and and do it. And so I just kind of did. And I wow. haven't stopped since. Yeah. So exciting. And what were you actually wanting to make at that point? Was it paintings? Sort of. I didn't know, actually. Like, I had been sort of doing – I was always very drawn to collecting things, to found objects and textiles. And for a while I had been collaging, you know, vintage textiles and um, papers and things into my work and painting and 
bringing fibers in and things, but it was, I was still really unclear as to what, I was still really torn between being what I thought a New Zealand contemporary artist looked like, which, you know, I felt at the time was kind of aligned with like Makan and Hotere and different, you know, different kind of really iconic artists and reconciling what my true loves were, which were kind of, um, I guess, nanocore craft stuff which didn't feel particularly contemporary so I I really didn't I really didn't know how to express myself so I was just trying lots of things and I did um some friends encouraged me to try the 100 days project um which was amazing for me every day for 100 days you can sort of set your own project and I the project I set for myself was Uh, listening to a different song every day for 100 days and just responding creatively in whatever media I felt. And I put a two-hour time limit on it. So some days it would take me 10 minutes and other days I'd get to an hour 58 and still really hate it, but just have to live with it. Um, And that was an amazing process for me because once I could look back on the, the 100 pieces, there was probably only about 10 that I actually felt connected to. But it showed me some perhaps some strengths in terms of color and mark making and um and also some weaknesses that I could really cross off my list of <laughs> what of not techniques. to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah. So it was it was a really great process of like that was probably the first time I really understood about making lots of work in order to kind of find your way. Mm. And that, yeah, that, and that, that project is is such a great way of um, making you work every day, isn't it? Keeps yeah. you kind of accountable. Yeah. 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 The idea of creativity as a practice mm. is something that I think is undervalued. Yeah. Yeah. So you were thinking, okay, this is feeling good. You know, you were enjoying that sort of, you know, allowing time in your day for your creativity. How did it develop from there? Um, well, I exhibited my 100 Days project with a couple of other local artists at um, a beautiful little store in the village, and that felt lovely. And then, um, well, kind of lovely and kind of horrendous because I didn't like so many of the pieces, but it was great to just kind of own the process and kind of put my big girl knickers on, I suppose, mm. and just say, yeah, I made this stuff um, and accept that it was okay that it wasn't all amazing. Um, and then that experience kind of gave me a bit of confidence to start making more work and, you know, putting it out there, cafes. And I think I did the Nelson Art Show maybe the following year um, for the 100 Days Project Exhibition. I I'd struck up a relationship with a local framer and they, you know, had mounted a lot of the work just on board but had framed sort of the 10 best pieces and those pieces sold and that was quite confidence boosting and, yeah, just all those little, like, cookie crumbs that that keep you going. Yeah, and that's just getting out there and often the one thing leads to another, doesn't it? Yeah. Which is great. That's, That's a good reason for putting yourself out there and trying those kind of projects, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you weren't, you hadn't sort of introduced embroidery into your practice. No, no. Uh, that, that happened quite organically, which was wonderful because for years I'd collected vintage. You know, the the little 
tea cloths that you find at the op shop and they've got a stain on one side and but some beautiful embroidered flowers on the other and I I'd collected and collected those kinds of things and textiles with beautiful patterns and colors and it all resonated so deeply with me but I didn't understand why for so long that I actually gave away I think two massive collections across the years because I just I I tried sewing with a sewing machine and I hated it and um, I kind of mucked around I did bring a little bit of the textiles in in terms of collaging and stuff but that even that wasn't that satisfying to me so I just didn't understand what it was for and then yeah eventually it was just one day I was working on a piece in the studio and I had I guess through the 100 Days Project and through practicing more, learnt that my process, I'd learnt more about myself as a creative and I could understand that, you know, like I really didn't enjoy planning and that's something that, you know, you're sort of told you're supposed to do perhaps when you're learning a bit more traditionally and things that you you plan and you create and, uh, you know, from a sketch or whatever. And it just none of that, felt very intuitive um, for me as a process. So I just started playing more and more and more. And the more playful I got, the more happy accidents and good, messy, weird things happened. Um, And my husband had also said to me, you know, I really think you just need to make a body of work. You know, don't worry about trying to sell stuff like that. You know, that can come next. And I mean, when he said that it wasn't because we were in such a wonderful financial situation that it was easy. (laughs) Bless Mm. him. He was, he was just super, he's just always been my biggest cheerleader. So it's, it's pretty special when someone's willing to eat rice with you on, on end. So good. Um, so yeah, so it, it was just one of those things where it was, I had support and permission to go away and play and explore. And then it just, tu- one day it turned up, I had a, I think a blunt needle and some random bits of thread. And I thought, oh, I should, maybe I'll try bringing this into the canvas. And I did. And it mm. really ticked a lot of boxes for me in, t- in terms of color and texture and, and then just, yeah, slowly kept building the process from there. Mm. So it really evolved from the mixed media and and did it start as more of a, a way to attach the fabrics that you love so much to your work, do you think? Or was it Oh no, a, it was purely mark making. Yeah. Yeah. Initially it was purely mark making. So it was very kind of rudimentary, like little crosses and little um sort of emulating some of the marks that I would see in the stitched pieces that I had collected. Um so yeah, more just adding texture to work, um, not even really understanding how to create an image with the stitches. Um, I sort of started with canvas and paper works and then realized that was actually quite hard going. It was hard to do. It was hard on my fingers and mm. not very practical maybe. And the penny kind of dropped that people stitch onto linen and paint onto linen and it was sort of like oh okay maybe I could explore how to make the linen a little softer but I could still stretch it like a canvas because even then even as I was early days exploring it I understood that I was stepping into the craft space but in order to earn a living, I would probably need the work to sit in the art space mm. so it was sort of a, quite a conscious choice to try and keep the work in a painting format as opposed to maybe 
going and working in softer textiles and things. I wasn't, I, I didn't understand that there was a place for that at that point. Yeah, yeah, which is really interesting, isn't it? And that whole sort of argument between craft and art and what is art and what is craft um, is an interesting one. Mm. And I think yeah, that, that luckily, I think that craft is being seen seen more now as a as a form of of art and fine art. Yeah, and it, it seems to be more accepted, which is great, isn't it? Oh yeah, I mean, uh, definitely. I mean, I think I think in lots of ways it it always has been, but in New Zealand at that moment in time, it wasn't as common to go into say a dealer gallery or an art space and see a lot of object and craft work on display and really celebrate it I think you see it a bit more commonly now which is pretty wonderful yeah um I definitely spent a lot of years you know probably from 20 around 2015 to say 2016 just explaining that it wasn't just nana craft <laughs> Mm. That was yeah. I got a lot of people would come into my gallery space and say, "Oh, you know, um, oh, my nana would love this. Uh, my nana does this. I can do this." Yeah, <laughs> and so that was kind of an interesting. It and is interesting, isn't it? That whole that whole nana craft, and even using the word nana in a slightly derogatory way is yeah. is kind of not that cool. Yeah, especially because I always felt deeply connected to the women of past generations. Um, I didn't understand it at the time, but when I first started to stitch, it really genuinely felt like the women of generations past um, came to guide me. And my great-grandmother's tablecloth was a, a beautiful object that I talk about often because it was just such a magic moment for me when I realized that that was kind of my creative DNA that was who I really was and that the reason I knew how to stitch without ever having been shown was because it was part of you know my my maker genes I guess you know Mm, mm. (laughs) um yeah which is so lovely yeah it is lovely it's quite comforting actually to realize I think for most of us something that we don't always strike on as early as it would be nice to is how we actually do have everything we need we do know Mm. um we just don't we we often I guess the way you learn is often that you go and seek inspiration externally but actually I think for most creatives I think a lot of creatives maybe would agree that the real magic of their work comes from their internal um, stuff, whether that's their heritage or their, you know, ancestry, magic alchemy of creativity. Yeah. 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 And it is, it's so interesting. And and I just find it fascinating when you look at, at people and the different things that they make and, you know, why they end up making that kind of thing. Or, you know, how, and, you know, for for me, responding to my place of Muruai Beach, you know, that is so important to me. And it's so, I so need to be responding to that place for some reason through my art. And I can't really think of anything else I would do, which is interesting. 
like you know how has it got under my skin that much that my art practice is is fundamentally based around where I live I think it's I think it's actually so completely natural I've been thinking about it quite a lot because I've written in my book a chapter called creative soul and it is kind of about how I I guess came to identify mine and some suggestions for folks who might be searching for theirs um and I love that you've talked about place because I think place is a really important part of that for a lot of people um and that you know and when I sort of say I think it's genuinely all already there for us I really think it's in those little a creative soul kind of exists in the little weird things that we adore that aren't necessarily the normal things that you would collect or prize on your mantelpiece you know whether it's that you you beachcomb and you're obsessed with just weird little smooth bits of driftwood or you know whatever it is it's it's those kind of like little quirky um treasure things that mean something special um and and it might be the smell of a place or the sound of something it's it's not sort of a straight line to your to identifying these things they're not always completely obvious but but there's often yeah just so many clues all around us Mm. um yeah. yeah. And I feel like it for some people it's just kind of opening their mind up in, in a way that when they see these things, then they allow their mind to start kind of going to these other places in response to something exactly. they've seen or something they've found. Yeah, exactly. That's totally what I think is just that it's often all around us, but we just don't realize that it's telling us things that it's kind of guiding us um you know I kind of couldn't believe it when I realized how surrounded I'd been by uh embroidery and textiles all my life and then to you know I had my grandmother's cross stitches framed on the wall and my great-grandmother's tablecloth and I collected these you know sort of felt like I was rescuing almost these little tea cloths and and things that and I just I mean, yeah, it just took me ages to understand that, oh, okay, just mm. follow that little that little trail and see where it leads you. Like, no harm yeah. done if it doesn't yeah. take you where you want to go. Yeah. That's so true. So going back to the, the painting and the stitch work, so you call them your stitch paintings, don't you? Yeah. Can you talk us through, um, firstly, maybe describe how they look but also talk through the beautiful process that you uh, that you go through to create these gorgeous works, which I absolutely love. So, uh, yeah, how does it all start? Thank you. It is, um, it's quite a sort of an organic process often. So I intentionally called them stitched paintings right from the beginning. Again, it was that thing of just placing them in the art space. And so I create a different range of works. Some are very textural and covered completely with stitch um, and texture and fiber, and others are um, much more kind of, I suppose, the background, the initial painted linen is is on display a lot more, and I hand paint often floral, botanical kind of imagery onto them. Um, so you know, the process, the physical process generally is kind of 
two or three phases and the initial phase is taking large pieces of linen out to the garden and um, pouring water and very watery acrylic paint all over them um, and allowing that to evaporate dry in sort of a puddly mess. It's very sort of abstract and soft and washy um, because I realised that stitching through quite heavily painted linen is hard going. It's hard on the fibres and it's hard on your body. Um, So I found that sort of almost through accident, I found that making the paint quite watery could create both a beautiful sort of watermarks and a washy effect. Um, And it also took away that blank canvas kind of feeling. So that's sort of my base. So I'll often create those without a purpose. I'll just create a bunch of them and then decide what part of it I really like, what what area of the marks really speak to me, or, you know, what colour background on a practical level I want to use. And um, then I will, yeah, uh, often inspired by my garden. I love growing flowers from seed. Um, that feels like just the ultimate accomplishment for me. And so when I um, am choosing what blooms to represent, it's often something that I've grown that season and I'm feeling quite attached to because I've been on a journey with it. Um, So, yeah, um, that's often where I get sort of subject matter inspiration from is the garden or nature. And then Um, I'll paint that imagery on using either acrylics or gouache um, straight onto the linen and then work back in with um, fibres, whether that's, you know, fine cottons or um, I love to use a silk merino wool blend. Um, It's really beautiful to stitch with and I like to use hand-dyed wools often because they have sort of some either really obvious or subtle variations that create beautiful effects. Mm. Um, so, yeah, and and I can bring stitch and beading and into the work. Um, so, yeah, some of my pieces I will collage vintage textiles onto, say, a woolen blanket and then work back in. And, and sometimes you'll see some of the textile and other times I'll completely cover the textile, but I'll use those vintage images as my kind of forms. Um, it's just very playful. I never know when I begin, um, even with a commission, what the outcome will be at the end. I can only kind of have a rough, I might have three words that guide me, you know, or, or a very, very simple brief, but, um, yeah, it's Mm, a slow process. So there's plenty of time to work it out as you go. The colors can sometimes be quite rich. I'm a real color lover, but they're not often completely dense in the sense that it's like um, if you were to do a regular painting, it would be your base layer. You know, it would be your blocking in, color blocking in simple forms. And then I bring kind of the detail through with stitch. Mm, So, so beautiful. I absolutely love them. I love that painted linen idea. That's just such a lovely backdrop they they feel very sort of soft and gentle and and gorgeous and but then so sort of textural and and amazing and your use of shape is is very cool and then the line I love the line the way you connect often the the shapes with them with beautiful line or just you know a line of stitch it's just really gorgeous thank you those lines are um what I what I 
a real light bulb for me was when I realized that I didn't need to try and represent an image fully realistically and that actually what really set my kind of um, heart aflutter was when you feel something you know so when I'm picking flowers or I'm wandering around the garden um I feel the energy of the whole ecosystem that I'm in kind of speaking to each other and and so those little lines are kind of the conversation between the growth the movement the the I guess the essence and the energy there that kind of I feel very kind of connected to something bigger than me when I'm in nature and so yeah I think those lines have become they started quite intuitively but on reflection I think they are my way of communicating that growth energy movement progression Mm, connection yeah yeah and and like that you know speaking about place obviously you're bringing so much of yourself through that time that you have in the garden, in your ecosystem. And then it becomes such a personal thing, doesn't it, that you're then sort of taking those inspirations into your artwork. Yeah, it's just, um, I I don't know, you know, I guess when you develop a process um, through play and experimentation, um, and then I guess for me I found a really slow process it's become incredibly important for me to embrace how slow it is and make sure that it's enjoyable because that's one of the things you kind of stumble upon when you start to want to create art and earn a living is that you might have to create a lot of it in order to earn a living. And how do you do that? Um, I guess I've had some lessons along the way that have helped me learn the difference between pumping it out and making sure that it always embodies the soul and the joy and the beauty that I'm experiencing when I feel inspired to create. Mm. Yeah. And how do you do that? Uh, well, for me, I it, it is really about um, embracing the slowness and ensuring that I have a diverse offering of of things that I can bring to the table that can bring, I guess, allow me to earn some income in different ways so that the process is never the thing that I have to sacrifice um, in order to, you know, earn a living. Yeah. Uh, Because I tried that at the start and it's not very satisfying. (laughs) No. And then you also end up rushing and, you know, trying to get things finished and out and yeah. And you've been super smart and sort of entrepreneurial with the way that you run your business in a sort of quite a holistic way um, so that you have your, your practice, but then you have other things that um, help you to earn a living, as you said. So can you tell us about your amazing embroidery kits that you have created? And then we can possibly talk about the um, the workshops that you provide, which are incredibly popular um, as, as sort of different streams of income, I guess, for you as an artist. Yeah, so it was kind of um, I learned through trial and error that when you stumble on a process that just happens to be quite a slow one, that you may want, there may even be demand. That was definitely the problem I had initially was that there was a lot of demand. Once I finally got people to to enjoy and embrace my work, um, 
and found the people that wanted it, I couldn't keep up with the demand. And then I kind of became a bit of an art factory and really um, burnt out a little bit. And that was when the birth of sort of diversity in my practice arrived. And that took the form of kits and workshops and um, and now other offerings as well. And so they kind of stemmed from a practical need, but really also from my love of teaching. Um, I found, I started to teach workshops before I even started to stitch. Actually, it took me quite a long time to start teaching embroidery workshops because I was self-taught and I was conscious that I I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, but um, I started teaching some workshops. I found I really loved the interaction of working with other creatives um, to sort of support them to meet their creative goals and that I found that that brought me a lot of energy and inspiration for my own practice. And then people really started to resonate with the supplies that I used. And so I felt like that was really an extension of the idea of more people creating. You know, you know, when you just, you feel like you've hit on something that you just love so much that you want everyone to have it, not mm. Not, not that you want to force it on people, but just that it would be so lovely to be able to share that. Um, so for me, um, the kits really are about the fact that I love vintage textiles and sourcing beautiful supplies and genuinely sharing the things that I love to use and create with. And um, they have become really popular. And I guess I was sort of helped by the kind of craft revival of the pandemic as well in that mm. way. And it kind of happened at a really beautiful time for me where I'd finally realized that I needed help in the studio. And so I um, had over a couple of years started to work with different folks and and then struck on a really amazing studio um, person, Miranda, who still works with me now but yeah so that was kind of all of those you know it's timing's a beautiful thing too yeah. so I, made, I started making kits uh, probably quite a long time ago but I would when I was just muddling along by myself I would make 10 and they'd sell out in five minutes which was wonderful for the ego but actually terrible for the bank balance because I didn't have time to make any more but I knew I could be selling more and it was the mm. sort of weird scenario to be in as a small business. And how are um, you selling those kits? Was that still at the market or online? No, yeah. So I ha I had a very brief stint at the market and realised I wasn't cut out for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the early Saturday morning starts were not my jam. Uh, it took me quite a while. I was actually represented in Australia for my work and through that process, the Aussies were the first ones to pick me up. Really? Um, really and um and really embraced my work and through that I learned a lot about having an online presence and um eventually it took me way too long to get my own website um sort of dabbled around with having in the early days I think I had a felt store and then an Etsy store and then um eventually got my own website and that's yeah when I started to properly sell kits it was through my own website and it mm. still is and your yeah. website is amazing. It's so detailed. You've got so, so much on there, uh, which is really inspiring. And so can you actually describe the kits? And so if, if I wanted to buy a kit, what would I actually get? 
Um, so we make we make a couple of different kinds of kits. We've made some kits, a couple of kits, like our peony kit, for example, that um, is really inspired by the fact that just about everyone that ever comes to a workshop always wants to stitch a peony. So it's kind of, um, we knew it was the popular flower. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one comes with like my hand-painted linen and some a bit of a guide like I'm not a real step-by-step human being in terms of how I approach almost anything in life and certainly not how I approach creativity but so they're not um I guess kits that will completely give you the recipe but they will give you all the jumping off points um so Mm. like an image to trace and the threads to use the needles I use and then a bit of a gentle guide sort of saying hey try this and then um I send some a link to some stitch videos along with the kits um so we do have some you know sort of a couple of standard kits in that regard and then the other kits that we do which we release three times a year are our one-of-a-kind kits and they are um curated using vintage textiles and retro textiles that we source um because I'm an avid op shopper and trade me trawler and fabric hunter. Um, So I find, yeah, maybe a beautiful floral image on a piece of linen, and then I'll build a colorway around that, um, which is not always the colorway that's on the fabric. So it's kind of, um, yeah, and, and people will purchase those. They don't come with instructions, but there's already an image there to kind of, jump off with and um again the stitch videos those are often a little bit more kind of challenging for people to start they have to be a little bit braver but I really like to encourage that kind of creativity Mm. so as much as people probably want a few more instructions to start with I I refuse (laughs) (laughs) because I want them I want them to find that moment of bravery to put that first stitch in. Yeah. yeah, and it's really sort of encouraging their own creativity, isn't it? It's That's where my passion lies. It's not in me telling someone what to do. It's in inviting them mm. to find their, their thing. Yeah. yeah, and it's a beautiful thing to think that you, by providing these kits, could, you know, be helping in the beginning of somebody's new creative journey. Yeah, that's that's what... I've kind of got this rule with myself that I only offer things out into the world that feel genuinely interesting and joyful and beautiful to me um, that hopefully have not too heavy a footprint um, in terms of the environment and that that encourage people's creativity. Yeah. Mm, And they certainly do, I'm sure. And so you do have kits that have beads and other sort of embellishments. Is that right? Yes, we do. Yeah. So that's also really fun to find all of that stuff because I'll often just buy old necklaces and things from the op shop and cut them up. And um, I do sometimes have to source um, new beads if I can't, you know, just sometimes there's a shortage of green necklaces or whatever (laughs) I'm after. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and and that kind of, um, we do also kind of, we've started to do as my work's become more textural, we've started to offer more textural kits as well. So um, 
we'll sometimes do a, like a limited release of a forest moss kit or a textile pack that has just lots of different textures in it for people to play around with. And I like the idea that 10 people could get the same kit and the outcomes would all be mm, so different. I love yeah. that. Yeah. And, you know, your prices do reflect the love and care and time and the sort of bespokeness of each kit, which is great. You know, you obviously you've got a good price point where you are sort of acknowledging what you're putting into it. Um, so how did you figure out the pricing and how do you actually kind of organize yourself to get these kits made, apart from having your wonderful studio assistant, Miranda? Yeah. <laughs> which sounds well, like a dream a studio she, she is a dream and it's been a, a total game changer for my business I think you could literally plot the tra- trajectory from the day she started um, and it is having a, a second brain and a second pair of hands is a pretty invaluable thing and and I don't want to make it sound like I um, get to have her every day of the week I wish I did Um, she comes to the studio one to two days a week and she'll sometimes do some work from home as well but um, yeah it's so it's it's sort of still relatively baby steps in that way but um, yeah so we we work with a distributors I try to ensure that the supplies are beautiful quality so my hoops are a German manufactured beechwood hoops our needles are made in France um we don't kind of I I use I share the supplies that I genuinely use um so I'm definitely I guess you know it's interesting when you decide to make little decisions, little things, choices you make along the way. Like when I decided to put my stitched work in the art space, it's a bit the same with the kits. I don't, I'm not trying to compete with Kmart. That's great. You know, like absolutely. I don't care how people come to creativity. And sometimes when it's only cost you $5, it's actually great because you're not so precious about it. Um, But I can't, I can't as a small studio in rural New Zealand even begin to compete with that kind mm. of stuff and um and I've also seen a lot of other sort of contemporary embroidery artists um internationally do that and create really you know amazing kits only to be kind of have their work copied by large factories and things and so I guess yeah part of it's the soul and of it the other part of it is that I get really easily distracted. So it really does have to be something I love. Otherwise, I will only do five and you'll never see them again. And that does happen sometimes, you know, mm. I'll just try something. Um, and the other thing is, I think that there's kind of a energetic exchange that needs to occur when it comes to money um, and work. And if you price something always just to meet the market, but not to meet your needs, as a creative and as a human being who needs to feed their family. And then you really can start to resent actually making that thing because you haven't priced it at a point that it makes it worth your while to Mm. keep your energy going with it. And so that's been a big part of my pricing. Often I will price things, of course, based on all the costings and the time involved and all of that, but also the, you know, does this feel like a fair price to 
make this thing with good energy and send it mm. out into the world with love each and every time. That's right. And, and it's, it's such a personal thing where you've you've put it together yourself, you know, you and Miranda, and you've come up with the ideas. I mean, that should be, that's worth so much. And it's like a dentist. I mean, they're not going to treat somebody's teeth and, um, you know, charge not enough to cover the actual work. For some yeah. reason, with artists, it, it it seems to be something that's accepted that you can that you can charge without actually acknowledging the time and love and effort and knowledge that you've put into it. Yeah, that's it. I'm really, I'm actually really passionate about this because I think it just requires a bit of blind faith to throw a price out there sometimes. And I get that it's hard. It's still one of the hardest things for me too. And I struggle, you know, because there's that sort of idea of wanting things to be accessible and you do want people to be able to have them, but then also the price that it needs to be for you to be able to earn a living. Um, but I think there's far too many creatives in our industry that will kind of be guided by a really unkind and, and unforgiving marketplace and not guided by their intuition and their, their genuine needs. I mean, mm. I just don't think as artists we should be apologizing for le- earning a living and requiring it. No, exactly. And and you do have a, a really nice variety of prices. So there is something for everybody. And you have the the fabric packs, which are also a great way for creatives to get started, but possibly they bring in more of their own ideas and more of their own choices of fabric and and, uh, thread and that kind of thing. But giving people like a starting kit of fabric, which you've sourced and it's it's mostly vintage, isn't it? Yeah. And and so, yeah, so the textile packs that we create, they're actually quite new and we we started to create them because we realised that quite a lot of the folks that buy kits from us are regular customers and and um you know the more they engage with what we do they've often been to workshops and um we've created together in some way and so perhaps they don't need all the hardware that comes with a kit they they don't need the hoop and the needles anymore and and maybe they've already got quite a good stash of threads for example so Partly, yeah, for people that maybe don't need it or also to open it up to people who may want to do something completely different with it, you know, quilt with it or um, collage with it or, you know, whatever works for them. Um, We love the textiles so much. And Mm -hmm. it's also a little bit of an ethos around making sure that we don't have any waste because when we source vintage fabric for the one-of-a-kind kits, there's only certain areas of the fabric that will have imagery that really works for, say, a specific size of hoop or a frame that people can work with. And so then there's there's always leftover fabric that um, is still really beautiful and still has, say, half a flower on it or half of an element that can be great in a collage or in a more abstract piece. That Mm. um, Yeah, but I mean... Yeah, I also do have on the site, um, and they're having a little bit of a revival at the moment for some reason, just $20 um, digital downloads for um, people that are interested and perhaps maybe have their own supplies and they can just download the sort of a a creative guide and an image to um, trace and make their own work from that. And um, I did that in the first week of the pandemic when we were all scrabbling around and I just had 
um, you know, art fairs and art shows and workshops in Australia cancelled overnight and was didn't really have anything happening on my website and thought, ah, what am I going to do? Mm, as we all did. Yeah. yeah, that was a crazy time. And that, I mean, and so that that's an actual drawing, a personal, like you've, you've draw, made the drawing and then put it yeah. onto digital. Yeah, things. so it's a, it's basically people download a PDF that gives them um, a suggested colour palette if they want to make it like I made it. So I tell them what the colour codes for the threads are so they can order online and what type of needle, what type of hoop and all of that kind of stuff. If they need that knowledge, it's there. And then a bit of a, just a very, again, I'm not like a, a an exacting point-by-point point person, but a, a, a step-by-step sort of guide to stitching the work um, and the types of stitches that I might use. Um, and always some kind of encouragement to take it in their own direction and then an image to trace um, because, you know, that's just kind of nice. Sometimes people just want a jumping off point and... Mm. Um, Drawing can be a real kind of block for a lot of yeah, people. So, totally. yeah, just taking that out of the equation. Yeah, mm. that is so brilliant. I love your your diversity. Well, I think I would. You know, I often really envy. You see those really incredibly successful artists that just do the most amazing work and um, and have you know incredible big shows with maybe a a, a really amazing dealer gallery or what have you and I I do kind of envy that in some ways because I think wow how amazing it would be to have the time to really just focus on building bodies of work but I guess I came to the diversity in my practice because it just simply wasn't an option for me to not earn a living um uh, so whilst and I, and I'm not um suggesting that that's easy for other artists that have that because I can see now that it isn't as just a completely straightforward process um but yeah like I think um when you need literally kind of need to be able to pay the bills you come up with different ideas and you just Mm. try them and some of them work and I've had plenty of fails (laughs) yeah but it's amazing that you actually just how you manage you know, all of those things, producing all of those things and getting all those ideas out there. And then also, um, you know, traveling around New Zealand um, to teach workshops as well and then have your art practice. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about the teaching workshops? So I teach in New Zealand and Australia primarily at the moment. Um, I have kind of a range of workshops that I teach and they change all the time because I'm just one of those humans that doesn't I get a bit bored doing the same thing over and over again so as my practice evolves often the workshop uh, workshops evolve but I teach everything from like a one day floral stitch basics kind of introduction workshop uh, where someone might just it would either be people who already stitch regularly I like my workshops to be a mix of experienced and beginners um, because I find there's something really special that when you get people round a table to create and people share their knowledge and ideas it's really wonderful so it's and again because I'm not very formulaic about anything I kind of try to teach relatively small groups, sort of 10 to 16 as my usual workshop size. And it means that 
we I can work with people individually to kind of meet their goals. So a one-day workshop would involve perhaps learning some stitches or diving in if you're already experienced. And um, I basically try and find out what it is each person wants to achieve and then work with them to do that through kind of the basic format or offering of a workshop. Um, I'm going to Auckland next week to teach a workshop um, that is a textile collage workshop and there's 10 wonderful humans coming to that and they will be stepped through the process. Um, We'll go on quite a journey together across three days. Um, They'll realise probably at some point that they've bitten off quite a big project and and may wonder why they came. Um, (laughs) And then um, we'll work through that and um, they'll leave with a plan to continue on with. Mm. It's quite rare with embroidery that you could finish a work in the time of a workshop. Um, And then uh, later in October, I do have, yeah, the only workshops I've got any availability in at the moment are... um, in Christchurch at the end of October, I've got two one-dayers. Um, and then, yeah, possibly that'll be it for this year because I tend to workshop in autumn and winter, um, which is how I manage to get work made. Mm, that's <laughs> a good well. idea, yeah. Yeah, well, it tends to be the time that people want to snuggle in and create. Um, and I also, um, because the online course has just launched, I want to be able to give that plenty of energy. So I sort of taper off workshop in-person workshops when I'm focusing on that um, and that group of people. Um, and my next and my workshops will probably kick off. I think my first workshop will be in Australia at Green Door Studios in Robertson in March next year. Um, and uh, I'm just lining up some some other bits and bobs as well. Wow. Yeah. That's so great. Yeah. And I think, well, I think it's two-pronged. I think I finally realized that because I had spent about five years in the studio really developing my own process, I had such an intimate knowledge of it and that I wasn't trying to teach anyone anything I didn't know. And I think that's the most important thing is that when you workshop with people, I think I'm there to facilitate a space for people to create in, to to line up all of the things that you need to make it easy for them to show up with all of the supplies and a beautiful lunch and a beautiful location and really nurture them to enable them to kind of find their own way. Because having, you know, I try and attend, participate in workshops from time to time just to remind myself of how that feels. And it's really vulnerable. Mm. It's it's hard. the last workshop I attended was Hannah Jensen's um, acrylic paint carving workshop, and it was so delightful. I try to go to workshops that have nothing to do with my process so that I can just be there as a beginner and learn and enjoy. Because mm. a lot of people do come to workshops for that. They don't necessarily need a new thing in their lives, but they just want a weekend of creativity or yeah. um, uh, to to dip their toes into something new, a new process and see if it fits. And so, yeah, it's, um, I don't teach, I don't even really see myself as a teacher. That's just an easy way to describe myself. I think I really just facilitate and share as generously as possible. Mm, Which is a beautiful thing. And it feels like the classes that you, um, that you create and the, and the sort of connections that you have with your audience over a long period of time seem really authentic and genuine. And I can see from your um, social media that you have a lot of people 
keeping in touch with you and and you really sort of touch them in a in a really personal intimate kind of way yeah. yeah, and so I do genuinely, it sounds so corny, but I do really feel like I have friends all around the world now mm. through mm. through creating together. Yeah, which is amazing. And you do seem to have a very big reach across the world, as you said, and uh, your social media, your the way you run your Instagram and Facebook pages are um, is amazing. How have you made that happen? Well, it's kind of a long story and a short story. I guess I've made, I think one of the key things with social media is to be social. <laughs> so mm-hmm. many artists come and ask if, if they could, you know, buy me a coffee and ask some questions about, you know, Instagram. And I'm always happy to do that when I can. And often they probably the trickiest thing is that when I say, oh, you know, well, particularly initially, I would spend maybe at least an hour a day. Um, interacting and being there and being social and um, I guess that's often the bit that's a disconnect for people is that they're like oh okay great but I don't really want to do that and that's okay I totally get it Um, but it is kind of what's required to build a community online Um, I didn't do it to build a community online initially I did it because I was really struggling to get galleries to pick my work up. I didn't have an art network because I hadn't finished art school. Um, So I didn't really, I just didn't really know how else to make connections really. And it was, I was really lucky in the sense that I did start Instagram at at a time when it was quite generous um, and not as monetized as it is now. Um, One person who really helped me um, was Julia Atkinson Dunn, who used to, her brand is um, Studio Home. She's an artist and a gardener and an author and all sorts of things. But in those days, she was very much doing a lot of blogging about design and art in New Zealand and Um, She was teaching small business workshops and she happened to come to my gallery to teach a workshop and we traded, you know, me doing the workshop for her using the gallery space and it was, it really helped me. It was huge. So I guess I would definitely say, um, you know, if you do want, if you're a creative and you want to grow your online presence, um, like a course or a workshop is a great way to do it. Um, I'm now upskilling because sort of last year um, I realized that I was still trading on 2015 kind of Instagram uh, model and needed to understand better how it worked and so now I'm doing an online course with the Digital Picnic who are an Australian um, digital marketing agency and that's been invaluable for me so I guess yeah it, it just grew over time but Drew taught me things like take good quality pictures in daylight, you know, because often as creatives, we finish something at 10 o'clock at night and we want to share it with the Mm. world and take a really dreadful picture with horrible lighting. And Your photographs um, are are really beautiful. I wondered if you had a professional photographer take photos for you. So, yes, I do do that sometimes. And that's when I worked in Australia um, with various groups, I learned a lot about that side of things as well, that it's well worth investing in some good quality studio shots, um, if you can. I mean, I couldn't initially, but then often you can collaborate and maybe do a group shoot with a bunch of other artists in someone's lovely house, um, hire, share the hire of a photographer for a day and, and, you know, um, work with 
a few people who maybe sell some homewares and things so that you can collaborate and create some beautiful imagery. Um, so yeah, my work is, you know, my Instagram is a combination of phone photos and professional photos. Um, and then of course, like you might get lucky and the better you present yourself, I suppose, the more opportunity there is to express the energy of what you do visually. And then perhaps you might get some media and then that provides you with more content to share. And it just, it it does slowly, slowly snowball, but I've never paid for, you know, like a buy more followers kind of scenario. And I really think that if you can play the slow game and develop your audience fairly organically, it's not to say that you can't use things like hashtags and 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 sharing and all of that stuff to help grow your audience. But if you do it in a way that is genuine, then those people tend to stick around. Yeah. And they tend to be your people. And so it just gently snowballs mm. over time, really. Mm. And it's a lovely thing. And you do, and it's a nice space to be in too, because yeah. you haven't kind of you haven't bribed people to be there. They're there because they want to and they they jog on if they don't. And it's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think Instagram is a lovely way of sharing what you're doing. You know, I mean, I with my business I I love sharing the things that I've been up to and it it makes me feel good just putting it out there and I don't really mind who likes it or you know it's not really about that it's just just sharing in a way that maybe could educate somebody in some way or give somebody some inspiration you know that feels good to me and then it's a lovely record of of your journey and, and what you're producing over time yeah well absolutely and I think it can be um it's sort of there's a a real beautiful thing that can happen when you as a creative maybe don't know how to build a community and you can start to gently build one online I mean for me being in a tiny village in rural New Zealand and being able to I realized I had a gallery and that was actually really what drove me online was I loved having my gallery um but I realized that my small region and its very seasonal, you know, kind of visitor base was not going to be able to sustain a full practice for me. And so it was sort of by necessity, but also, yeah, and I just started it as a bit of an online portfolio to sort of show people what I did. And mm. um, yeah, magic things did come from it, you know, um, magazine articles, all sorts of things that have just slowly built my presence over time and and um have allowed me to kind of play the game the way I want to too which mm. is really lovely as yeah. a small business person and having articles and magazines and you know different media I think is a really great thing and then to have that showcased on your website it just sort of adds to your credibility in some ways I guess and also um is educating people about who you are and what you do yeah, and I think, you know, sometimes we have this thing in New Zealand where we're a little bit shy, and um, so I guess I was really lucky to kind of have my work picked up in Australia um, because they taught me they're a little bit more sort of bold and brave and um, 
And I think we've changed quite a lot in New Zealand. I don't think we are as shy as we used to be, but there is this sense of like, who am I to take up that little slice of the internet? And it's like, who are you not to? Like just the fact that you made something is such a brilliant thing. And I think if you can think of it as, like you said, kind of like more being of service rather than self-promotion, like maybe sharing this might encourage someone else to do it, or Mm. maybe sharing this might give someone else a little bit of a a, a beautiful moment today, um, allows it to feel much less kind of me, 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 and much more, you know, this is a genuine kind of exchange. And Mm. and that's, it's nice. You don't, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a it's a weird world. I get it, and um, I try to be genuine. I try, I do. I don't want people to meet me and go, "Oh, she does." That must have been a photo from twenty years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I try oh, and she's not as attractive yeah. as I thought she was. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that. That's, yeah, that's the, that's the funny thing with filters. You have to be very careful. That it's right. So I think, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you don't use filters anyway, and. Um, there are other people making work that may have similarities to yours, just like any artist. What do you think it is about your work in particular that people love? Mm, it's such a good question. And yeah, especially now that I teach so much and do the online course, there's, there's more and more people making work that's very similar to mine. Um, the thing that makes my work different is is my brain. I think <laughs> no one else could get into there and have quite. They can have a love for many of the elements of my process, but I'm the only one who's my kind of weird. And I think um, it's it's knowing that as a creative, it makes me feel not even remotely threatened now when I see work that is very similar to mine because I understand that that person's on a journey. To, to get to their full-blown weirdness and mine keeps evolving and so yeah I guess for me I have this sort of weird little goal with my work that I hope that my collectors will be able to look at it over a lifetime and every time they look at it see something new in the work yeah um, I'm very obsessed with really intricate details and I guess I'm lucky in that sense because it does make my work quite hard to emulate people can mm. People can follow the process in some ways and and make really beautiful pieces that probably look quite similar to mine often. Um, but if you were to put them next to each other, I think you would probably see that my geek out level on detail is is requires probably an obsession that most people don't have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's what people are seeing, obviously. And because you're sharing your journey and your and your process, people understand that. Yeah, and I think people, um, I, th- I think there's something about textiles and um, slow work that really is nostalgic and resonates with people. They understand sort of almost like the heirloom quality of it. Um, it has an energy to it that um, embodies things that aren't always as tangible in this world, you know, when everything feels kind of fast and shouty. Um, being the complete opposite, I think, is is quite a balm. And, um, yeah, so I think, yeah, I've, I've really noticed that 
the embracing of um the value of something that takes a long time to make you know initially when I was making small works I didn't feel I could charge as much for a small work as a large work I thought that charging had to be based on size and now it's because my work is so intricate often a very small piece will cost more than a large work Mm. depending on the level of texture and and making involved so yeah it's yeah I think you live a really beautiful life. What legacy would you like to leave your two daughters? Mm, that's such a gorgeous question. I mean, probably uh, I suppose part of my choosing to not um, be in more regular, reliable, full-time employment has had a lot to do with wanting to be around and with my girls a lot. Um, I feel really lucky that I I get to sort of um, be their taxi driver and do those boring mum life things that uh, sometimes do feel like a little bit of a drag, but genuinely allow us to have uh, quite a lot of great moments. So I hope um, the legacy that I leave to them is that they will understand that you can create the life you want to live and that it's... um, it's not always perfect that there's choices to be made. You know, I never want people to think that um, it's all, you know, absolutely easy and delightful. It's it's a normal life in every way. Uh, you're essentially a small business owner. Um, the highs and lows are, are very similar and perhaps even more so. I do often wish I was, why couldn't I have, you know, been passionate about making bread or something that people just, want to buy every single day um but yeah I really hope that is that was kind of a real conscious choice for me to to say you know it's okay if you choose to rent a house so that you can live the life that makes sense to you or it's okay if you choose not to and that you decide that being in um, a full-time employment for someone else feels much better for you. Like I just, yeah, I really hope, I think the world that they're inheriting is complex and will require them to be able to plot twist regularly. And I, I, I suspect that they may one day at the moment, I think they just think my job's a bit weird and that the only thing that they find mildly impressive is my Instagram followers. But um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but um, but I think hopefully they'll see that. Yeah, yeah. they'll have a great respect for for what you've created, especially as they get older. I'm sure. And now I yeah. can't get onto the questions until I've talked to you about your amazing book, which <laughs> you have released recently, called "The Untamed Thread," and that is published by Coa Press. So uh, how amazing to be now also a book author to add to your many threads, shall we say, (laughs) of your life and practice. So uh, how did you go about creating a book, writing a book, and um, can you tell us about the book itself? So, yeah, uh, the book, The Untamed Thread, um, has been a wonderful adventure this year. It will be, I actually just got an email this morning from Tonya, my um, lovely publisher at Coa Press, saying that pre-orders will be open on the 19th of September. So that's exciting. Um, 
she's got the printer's proof. She's in the UK at the moment showing her um, distributor over there. Um, I haven't seen it yet. I'm very excited. Um, I can't wait to hold it. At the moment, it feels quite surreal. It's a PDF, essentially. Mm. A very beautiful one. But uh, um, yeah, so at the start of the year, Tonya got in touch with me um, and she has published some really beautiful books, um, cookbooks and garden books at this point. Um, and she has really kind of grown this beautiful offering. Um, and her distributors in the UK and the US were, I think, wanting her to produce new and different titles. And so she was introduced to my work through one of her other authors, um, Julia Atkinson Dunn, who from the time she came and taught at mm. my gallery many moons ago, we've we've become really good mates. And um and so yeah, I felt really grateful for that introduction. Um and so yeah, she touched base and um invited me to put a proposal together. So I kind of had to think about if I had a book in me and um I didn't want it to just be a vanity project I guess I wanted it to have um offer something inspiring and beautiful but also uh purposeful so um yeah I I kind of came up with a concept around sharing both my journey to becoming a creative so from sort of some of the things we've talked about today but also kind of yes from the corporate world into becoming an artist um which sort of is peppered through the book and then the book covers aspects of my creative process and invites people so it's definitely not a like stitch DIY guide um there is some information about tools and techniques and the kinds of stitches I like to use but it's very much more a um a creative guide um that will hopefully encourage people who love embroidery but maybe also who just love creativity to um use nature and um some of the things that I just genuinely do like foraging and creating flat lays and doing different little exercises um exploring place and senses and all sorts of things um uh, uh, sort of dropped throughout the book um I really hope it will help people to identify who they are as a creative I think that's probably one of the parts of the book that I feel the most connected to is that I've shared how I um, worked out who I was as a creative and and it won't be the same for for everyone, but it might at least give them some little jumping off points and and some ideas for exploring that further and finding the things that really kind of um, ignite their creative soul. Um, I'm feeling super chuffed because the jealous curator who is Danielle Krista who is kind of a bit of a hero of mine has um endorsed the book with a really beautiful um few words on the back wow, that's great Feels, yeah and I love I that did. podcast the jealous curator it was one of the first podcasts I listened to actually and and really inspired me to create my own so awesome. yeah she's amazing yeah Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, so that's a big thrill. And, um, you know, when it's just, it's such a silly thing, but 
when you really love what someone does and then they validate you with some encouragement. Um, and she was very, very kind and generous and her support um, just feels like, yeah, feels yeah. pretty special. And she's a good um, person to have on your side because she's got a big following or a big community that she is part of so she can help you promote. Yeah, for sure. And But more than that, I guess for me was that thing of, you know, when you've worked so hard for years to just keep reminding people that it lives in the art world and then someone from the art world supports yes. what you do, that just, that was like Christmas, I've yeah. got to say. <laughs> Very affirming. It's so yeah. great. And do you yeah. think if you hadn't been approached by somebody to to create a book, do you think you would have ever come up with that idea yourself? It was always on my radar, but I think one of the things I've learned through lots of the different pro uh, projects and collaborations that I've done is that it is really, really good to work with people who know, who specialise in their area. Um, not to say that there aren't amazing self-published books out there, there really are, but I think, you know, um, yeah, so I guess it was in the back of my mind that I would love to maybe have the opportunity to do a book, but I definitely have noticed that the most wonderful experiences I've had personally have been a mixture of self-driven and supported. Mm, and yeah. um, really when you're trying to have a creative practice that earns a living, you do need to be kind of in the business of it and a lot. Um, so I just also knew I didn't have the time or the luxury of, you know, maybe taking a year to de develop a book. Um, so to have someone who already has deep knowledge of the publishing process and design process and all of that is just, it really is very helpful. Mm, it it is. makes your practice a bit more sustainable, I guess. Yeah, I think it's really important. Well, and my My business mentor said to me years ago, you know, you've got to take on people who, you know, get an accountant who knows about accounting, yeah. and you yeah. know, which sounds obvious, but you know, if you're if you're writing a book, get a book, a person who who knows how to promote it or knows what's needed for it to make a good book. You know, and yeah. and it it is obvious in a way, but it's it's very easy for a lot of us just to think oh, I have to do everything, but to yeah. actually outsource either outsource the stuff that you know somebody else could do better or outsource the stuff that you don't want to do. I think yeah. it's really important. Yeah, and sometimes, um, you know, like I think that we think as creatives, we sort of live slightly, or I've done it for years and I'm slowly moving myself out of it, but we sort of live slightly in that scarcity mindset of, oh, I shouldn't really invest too much in this because I don't know if I'll sell that or whatever. And I've definitely found the more I've kind of embraced working with people and investing in their services and their their processes, it's only served to elevate my work actually. Yeah. Um, sometimes that requires making really great relationships with people so that you can negotiate a sustainable way of doing it or you know you do, it's sort of um yeah it can be a tricky thing but the bonus I suppose um with working with a publisher um is that they take on the publishing costs mm. so um that I have obviously invested huge amounts of time um which has a cost of course but it, you know as a one woman essentially one and a half woman <laughs> um with Miranda's help band you know it's um 
Mm. Yeah, it, it's a, a big thing to also just have the financial initial investment mm. um, taken on by someone else is huge. Yeah, yeah that is huge. Oh, well done. I mean, I, I can't really imagine how you've actually fitted that into your busy schedule, but you've obviously done it. And uh, I would love to order that book. I think it's just kind of, you know, all your philosophies really fit with mine, I think. And I think I'd find that book very inspiring. And uh, I feel like we could talk for another three hours. So I need to get into <laughs> your book to give me some of those last little snippets of you <laughs> and your practice. So uh, let's just get on to those questions at the end. What would you say, Fleur, to your younger artistic self? Oh, well, now I actually for once in my life did my homework on this because um, <laughs> I thought, no, I really need to think about this. And um, one of the things I think I would say is that rejection, whilst it's hard, um, will make more sense down the track. Sometimes it's for a very good reason, actually, and can serve to either redirect you or align you with the people that you're really meant to work with, or even just force your hand to be a bit more practical about how you're doing things. Um, so, so try, I've definitely had those give up moments, but if you can, more than anything, just accept rejection and keep finding new paths to follow and don't don't give up basically just keep going keep going because I don't actually believe that it's always the most talented people that survive in this creative industries I think it's often um just the people that keep going Mm, I agree and who are your favorite artists and why and do they inspire or influence your work at all uh so I just have five gazillion favorite artists but I did choose a few that I I like really make my heart sing and they're quite random but um Alexander McQueen Couture is um just blows my tiny mind all the time I'm obsessed with watching their videos from their workshops um particularly the stitching and embellishment that they do um and I think there's something about seeing um the textiles and the the embroidery on a moving form on a human body that just sparks some something for me. Um, I've always felt really connected to like fashion, uh, certainly not for myself. I'm not the most fashionable human, but uh, but I'm really inspired by couture and fashion. Um, Liberty of London is another one. There's something so charming and nostalgic and um, kind of comforting for me about their textiles um and repeat patterns and um yeah so often just a an aesthetic even just their colors it's not always the physical print that is the thing that inspires me but it might be just a a little dash of hot pink or a little um you know the way that they've um worked with scale and pattern and things um there's a jeweler called Polly Wales um and she I think she's in LA but um she just does these really delicious um kind of rings where the gold almost swallows all these jewels that you see kind of peeping through and Mm. I I just and it's quite it feels very tactile and textural and I guess I'm always drawn to that and I'm a real bowbird I love I love the shiny things. 
I love the sound of those rings. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, they're, they're definitely on my like one day um, if I sell enough art list. <laughs> I adore them. Um, and then there's um, an Australian artist called Louise Muirson, who um, I'm totally obsessed with at the moment um, and have been for a while. She makes these beaded um, artworks that are kind of, often quite small in scale, but just you could spend hours, well, I could spend hours in them. Um, and she does make also wearable work as well, but she's just, they're sort of clustered and obsessive and the way the light kind of interplays with the beads and things just really appeals to me. Um, and then uh, Casey Zavaglia, who is um, an American artist, she creates embroidered portraits um, very, very different to what I do. Absolutely mind-blowingly incredible. The amount of um, time it must take to create her work is um, humbles me deeply. Um, and I just, um, they're often quite large scale. She plays around with scale. Um, so yeah, she's, they're kind of, um, I guess the people that when they pop up on Instagram, I I will definitely stop and spend a while. Yeah, so that yeah. was kind of what got me, got them at the top of my list. Yeah. There are some incredible um people doing incredible things with with thread at the moment. Yeah. It's mm. really inspiring, isn't it? And I wonder if you would ever consider uh wearable art creating that kind of thing or entering the um wearable art awards, or if you could see yourself working because I know you use clay in some of your embellishments. Could you ever see yourself heading into jewellery or or something sort of slightly different to what you're doing at the moment? Um, yes, that's a great question. I'm actually about to collaborate with a, a friend of mine, um, Susan Christie. Um, her art brand is Formantics, and she makes beautiful um clay vessels and and forms that have this lovely sort of mix of organic and architectural um and we're going to collaborate soon on some pieces whether they'll ever see the light of day I don't know yet we're just going to play together really Mm, um, which feels like um a real treat and I think is quite an important thing to do Mm. um I I guess the thing that sometimes holds me back from wanting to do um more kind of I guess it depends like if I'm going to do something a bit more product based I'd probably do it as a collaboration because often I'm just not passionate enough about the production process of something or but I could definitely see myself at some point exploring like um I don't know, I guess in a dream life I would create just embroidered worlds, embroidered rooms. Um yeah, so I would love to explore bringing it into lots of different, but that would be like a a three year project, mm, I guess, to like create an installation. installation. Idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that would be, be my that would be my ideal. Yeah. Mm, well, I will continue to watch you and see what you end up achieving, which I'm <laughs> sure is going to be huge. And uh, what do you think is your biggest challenge as an artist? Um, I really think it is carving out the time to play and explore. I think when you are, you know, wanting to make sure that you're paying the bills and earning a living, you can um, find yourself doing the things that you know work 
And it's really, really important to make sure that you're still growing as a creative because I think you, I mean, you owe it to yourself and and, um, your personal professional development, but also kind of to your collectors as well a bit, you know. Um, So, yeah, I think my biggest challenge is carving out time to just purely play, not to know that you've got a guaranteed new body of work or a new thing out of it but just just to explore and allow that space for yummy good stuff to turn mm, up yeah so important what drives you to make the kind of work you make um i guess the desire to i think the kind of work i make is just the work that belongs to me in a way so i don't i don't know that i mean i'm driven i suppose by the magic I experience when I'm in nature that that drives me towards the style of work I make but I guess the type of art practice I have is driven by my desire to live a creative life and get up every day and and have it as my job um and yeah so I guess I guess it I'm driven by the idea of being a full-time practicing artist as a long-term sustainable career Mm. Great answer. Well, Flair, it has been another complete pleasure to meet you, which is probably what I say at the end of every interview, but I totally mean it. Thank you so, so much for sharing your practice and your process with us. And uh, I can't wait to get your book and have it on my bookshelf. So uh, all the best. And thank you so very much for coming on the Creative Matters podcast. Thank you, Mandy. I, um, I just wanted to say that I have been loving listening to the podcast genuinely and I feel that what you're doing is really special for the New Zealand arts community because this is creating capturing moments in time for for all of the the, I love the variety of artists that you talk to and how you are um, so thoughtful about you know kind of allowing us to share you know, the fullness of our creative practices. And and so it's really creating a very special archive as well for moments in time for New Zealand art and artists and, and hopefully allowing us a little platform for other people all around the world to connect with what we do. So, um, you know, thank you. It's, it's a really generous thing that you're doing. 